Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you all for having me here and my family as well. I'm thankful that that my family has been able to come and, and be here also this morning with us. As we saw in the scripture here, I wanted to open up and just provide a little bit of context too by reading another uh, set of verses just on what I believe God is telling us through, through this scripture, what we see through the word as he has something to share with us. And that is in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, it says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. One of the reasons that maybe we look at Ecclesiastes at times and we read through it and think to ourselves, man, this guy is such a pessimist. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's our thought even as we go through here and we think, man, there is, there is uh, really a, a great sense of depression I'm feeling right now as I read these words. Because we think that there is absolutely nothing that we can do. We are, we are hopeless, we are helpless, and guess what? That's true. And I think that that's a, there is a message that God wants to show us, and that is that we cannot be our own Savior. And we cannot save the world. We are not the Savior of the world. We are the ones, if we are His, we are the ones to proclaim who the Savior, the true deliverer of the world is, and that is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so as we look at our scripture today, I want that to be the, the con context in which we look at it. So that we would go back even to the verse 114 in, in Ecclesiastes, right? As, as you guys have been studying this. And in verse 14, it says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Another way of thinking about vanity is meaninglessness. Everything has no meaning. It's meaningless. Everything I do, or that it's vapor. It's, it's but a time and it's gone. You know, in the, in the great scope of life, think about the existence of our time as humans on earth in the scope of eternity. I'm not even sure a dot on a sheet of paper from a pencil takes up the amount of time that our life takes up in the scope of eternity. So to have this perspective is, is important as we come to the word and we, and we dig into what God has to say here. So beginning in verse 16, we see really a, a, a scope of where we're seeing that kind of same reiteration that we saw in verse 14 of chapter 1. Moreover, I saw under the sun. Moreover, I saw under the sun. So this rotating of the earth as the world turns. So when I was a kid growing up, my great aunt, and she lived to be like 96, 
So I remember even going and sitting in when I was in college, sitting in her house, which actually was just around the corner over here, sitting in her house and having lunch with her, and she was waiting for her soap opera to come on as the world turns, right? And, you know, as I thought about uh, what this, you know, sense of Saul the sun and, and, and how it rotates and the turning of the earth and how we live and how we die, and I thought, you know, as the world turns, that phrase came to mind, and I thought to myself how so much uh, our lives are like soap operas. And if you've ever seen a soap opera, which I'm certainly not advocating that you go participate in, right? But if you have ever seen a soap opera, you often see that there is little to hope for, right? So in this striving, this vanity after win, this vapor that we're beating after, the preacher offers two supportive arguments that human existence and human effort is vanity, and those two things that are, the, are what I want to highlight today that come out of this word. But it's also something that I want to highlight is that there are some unsaids when he says something. Right? And what's interesting is often he, what, the, what the wisdom literature is doing here, what the preacher is doing here, is kind of creating this sense of contradiction where there's tensions that are at play. Right? Not contradictions and that there is absolute truth, right? And that he's contradicting the absolute truth. But there are contradictions in life, right? There are things that seem like this is what we're supposed to do, but in all reality, we strive and we do the best we can do, and we look back and we think to ourselves, that was just absolutely pointless, right? And so we, we see those tensions that are there. And the other tensions is we see the playing of the mind that is not a spiritual mind, a mind that has not been awakened by the work of Christ and the redemption of Christ and the given of the Holy Spirit in our life, right? That mind is not there in seeing some things that are going on, that there's a worldly mind that's there as well, and that those things are in play at the same time within us. And they're at battle with each other, and the tensions are present. And, and I think there's a, a level of wisdom here that's even saying that this is okay and that you need to see that, that this is a reality of the human condition, right? So there's two arguments, and, and those observable observations, the things that we, we can see, too, that are not really known is the completely unknown that are there because we uh, know that God is true, that God is real, that's out there, and we can't completely know the mind of God, right? So there is some abundant, fruitful, grace-filled, meaningful thing that's here, but there's also this idea or tension that's going on where there's meaningless vapor going on in the human existence, Right? So there's two arguments. Let's begin with the first one, looking at uh, verse 16 through 17. So once again, moreover, I saw the son that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. 
I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. One of the things that we see within this is that constant observation or argument that we also make as we observe the world around us, and that is that powerful are corrupt. The powerful are corrupt. Regardless if they strive to do good or not, they are corrupt because they base their rules, even if they are on the law, on humanity, on human wisdom. So whether they twist justice, right? So they take the law, they twist it for their behalf on an intent to cause harm in some capacity, wickedness. So we see that there, right? So in the place of justice, there is wickedness. So there are these people in the courts that are going to abuse the courts and the justice that they push is not a true justice. It is a wickedness. But then there's also those that are going to sit in the courts and they're going to push the law in a way that is just based on that human law. So it's a good thing that's being done, but yet it is still wickedness, right? It is still truly not righteous. Why? Because it is not God's justice. So what we can see here by putting in the forefront the wickedness of man and even in the goodness of man as justice is being pushed one way or the other, we can see this, that in the fact that the courts are not fair, that the rulers and judges are corrupt and that they're wicked and that they're going to do their own thing for their own benefit, but they're also going to try to do good things, but it's going to, the outcome is still not something that necessarily glorifies God. What we see in that is that God is the only just judge. That true justice only comes from God. And it's only his way, his rulings, that will always come to pass. Only his rulings. See that in verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. God puts forth his judgment. We can see this in looking at Romans 3, uh, beginning in verse 9. If you want to turn there, you can. But Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, meaningless under the sun. All is vanity. Right? That's the theme that we see. And of course, you have seen in Ecclesiastes so far. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp 
is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths of excuse me, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the only true law is God's law. The only just law is God's law. But what is the outcome of God's law? Death. Right? Whether we're righteous, whether we do good, or we're wicked, the outcome's the same. That once we know of our sin, we should be humbled by that. We should be broken by that. But often what we do is we still play in the misery. What is C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory? One of the things he talks about, right? Why you can't you can go play uh, with sandcastles on the seashore. You can go play in the white pretty sand on the beach. Instead, we tend to make mud pies in the slum, Right? Our grasp of the world is something that we only see through where we are in the moment. And as we are in that moment, often the, the things that we see, even though we see, look, here are wicked men doing wicked things with the law. Here are good men doing good things with the law. We still feel this sense of the world is a wreck. Our world is a wreck. Until we acknowledge that God is the God and he is the true just God and that there is only one hope and that is in him. Jesus is the only one that is righteous. He is the only one that is the good judge. He is the only one who has the law that mandate will reign forever. Matthew 16, 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. His judgment will come. And though in our mind we might think it tarries, it doesn't. It comes in the moment that he designs. And praise God for this, that by what we think might be tearing is the giving and granting of grace. So be patient in that grace. Don't, don't let the idea of the world going to chaos or that seems as though sin has the rule always and that there is no hope no matter what we do. All is vanity. Cling to the fact that grace is with you because God has granted it so and His justice is true. Right? 
2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that when each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, the judgment is going to happen. So you may be familiar, I'm sure you are, because I've talked with Wesley on several times, and, uh, and I'm sure that he's quoted Richard Siebes at some point, the Bruce Reed. Uh, but uh, I wanted to read for you a, a, a quote from the book, The, the Bruce Reed, and just put it in context, uh, what we're talking about today. I thought it was, it was really good. Let us not therefore be discouraged at the small beginnings of grace. But look on ourselves as elected to be holy and without blame, Ephesians 1, 4. Let us look on our imperfect beginning only to enforce further striving to perfection and to keep us in a low opinion of ourselves. Otherwise, in case of discouragement, we must consider ourselves as Christ does, who looks on us as those he intends to fit for himself. Christ values us by what we shall be and by what we are elected unto. Grace, though little in quantity, yet is much in vigor and worth. It is Christ that raises the worth of little and mean places and persons. But grace is not only little, but mingled with corruption. Our corruption, right? Therefore, a Christian is said to be a smoking flax. So we see that grace does not do away with corruption all at once. But some is left for believers to fight with. The purest action of the purest men need Christ to perfume them. And this is his office. So in our scripture today, we see in the humble beginnings, in the existence of humanity, that we are going to have to battle with corruption but the truth is, is that the judge of all the world has granted us grace. He has paid our ransom. He has provided for us a way out of the penalty we deserve. However, we should not grow prideful. Right? And I think that that's what the rest of our verses talk about. So if you would look at verse 18 through 22, let's, I'm going to reread that again as we talk about it. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Think about that Seeb's quote that I just said, right? You're smoking flax. God's testing you. There's still the corruption present even though grace is there. God looks at you at what he, where he's taking you because he looks at you with the identity of Christ. It's no longer you if you are a believer. It's no longer you that live, but Christ who lives in you. It's your identity is Christ, not your own, right? So we need to see for ourselves, though, that anything of ourselves is but like beast is what 
We see the preacher saying in verse 19, for what happens to children of men and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and the man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. Just a vapor. Like the flower, we are wither away and blow off into the wind. Right? As we see James say, All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust return. I'm going to pause right there, and we'll pick up in verse 21 in just a second. But Genesis 3.19 is where we see the context of the statement that's being made right here by the preacher. In Genesis 3.19, it says this. Remember, what's happened is sin, right? So man, Adam and Eve, have, have chosen sin over God. Instead of being satisfied with Jesus, instead of being satisfied with the Lord, instead they want more. And that longing they went for. And as they took the bite, right, they sinned. And they chose sin over God. They chose their own way. They contended for God's supremacy is a way that C.J. Mahaney puts and defines pride. It's a great way of seeing a definition of sin as well. We're contending for God's supremacy. We're choosing our way over God's way. Right? But but it says in Genesis 3.19, in that context, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So you're going to have to work to have food till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we see that context of us being something that we die, and we see this physically, right? In our world, we see our fellow man, obviously none of us have experienced this personally, but we've seen people in our life that have died, And we know what happens to their body. It decays. It turns to the wretched world, the wretched dirt in which we come from, the dust in which we come from. But as it goes on in verse 21, it says, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? Uh Uh-oh. He poses a question, right? And in that question, he actually answers it. Not there, but in other places. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, he says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Ecclesiastes eleven five. As you do not know the way, the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. But there is an acknowledgement, although not in that single moment, but in the context of the entire book. What we see the preacher saying is that, yes, you have a spirit. There is something different between you and and the beast. While your physical body will turn to dust, the spirit returns to God, and it returns to God for judgment. Right? 
So it goes on and, and, and says, So I saw that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will be after him? We don't know what it's like after we die, right? We can only catch a small glimpse of it. You know, as, as Paul might even call it, you know, it's in, in this kind of blurred out mirror, right? It's not even, it's not even a, a good solid 21st century mirror or camera, right? It's not high definition. It's this blurred out old mirror. If you go back and you find some antique from maybe the 19th century or early 20th century, you'll see the mirror is not as, as, as clear when you look into it. In the same way, it's, just this, it's fogged out, right? We can't see the whole picture. We can't grasp the whole thing. But life is not vanity if our life is in Christ. You see what happens here is that in this, this, this kind of posing of arguments and this placing out this second set of vanities that he begins to talk about here, the preacher and the verses that we're looking at, he, he, he's displaying this sense of we absolutely need God. Right? We need God in the sense that if you look back and it goes, remember a time where every matter and for every work, God's going to judge it. But there's a time for these things. There's a time for things to happen. Right? It says that God is testing them that they may see themselves are but beasts. And then it poses the question, do we have a spirit? Where, what happens to man? Well, one of the things we need to do is go about living our life for the glory of God, right? So one of the things that I thought about as I was reading this set of verses, 18 through 22, I thought the chief end of man, according to this, is, is dust, right? The chief end of man is dust. Man is mortal. Man will die. Man will turn to dust just like the animals. However, the preacher does acknowledge as we see that we have a spirit, so we want to have a meaningful life. Let me conclude with, with a few scriptures. And not that I'm ending, but I'm going to bring all of this into context. So uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6 through 10. And I'm sorry, I, I skip around. I'm all over the place. But uh, since indeed God consider, considers it just to replay excuse me, affliction, uh, those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. Remember, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But there will be a time where those that do not know Jesus and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus will be judged and will be separated right, from meaningful 
life. The meaningful life is not our own. That's an important lesson for us to learn in the scripture that we see here. The meaningful life is not our own. It is to be given the new life in which we have a meaningful life. It is in the redeeming work of Christ in which we have a meaningful life. It is being born of his spirit, washed in his blood, that we have the blessed assurance. Right? So let's look at what it might mean here to see meaningful life come from dust in Ezekiel 37. I couldn't get away from the scripture. For whatever reason, the Lord kept laying this on my heart. And as, as I looked in and, and was studying verses 16 through th- uh, 22, it just kept coming back and I just could not let it go. So as a result of that, you get to hear it. <laughs> so uh, it says, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. And set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. Dust. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? You know, think back here, uh, 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast go down into the earth. Right? Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. (laughs) You know. I don't know. You know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and I prophesied that there was a sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone and I looked and behold there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them and then he said to me prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to the breath thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breath of these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied, and he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet in an exceedingly great army. Who knows the spirit of man? Who gives life to man? God. It's his word, the gospel, that brings us life. If you keep going and notice what it says, so I, uh, once he, the great army, it says, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. 
Behold, say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. In the newness of the meaningful life, Christ becomes our anchor, Christ becomes our deliverer, and our life. It is through the word of the Lord that we learn that the chief end of man, as it says in the Westminster Catechism, states that man's chief end and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. That is life. That is meaningful life. It is to worship the Lord Jesus. Right? Yet even, even in this meaningful life where we have the assurance of the finished work of Christ, we, much like this preacher, will find ourselves considering the vanities of the world. We will find ourselves considering the futility of the world. One way to kind of see the language in which we see the preacher using in Ecclesiastes of the word vanities is a similar language that we see Paul use when he uses the word futility. In Romans 8, 20 through 25, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. Why did he subject the world to futility? In hope. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage, corruption, and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. Isn't that kind of what, when you're reading Ecclesiastes, you're groaning. I need something. I, I can't see the world because of the world. <laughs> You know, I can't see life because of my life. I'm confused. The contradictions are all over the place. So we're groaning. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Moving from the right now to the soon to be, right? Remember, that is the work of grace. We saw it in the, in the quote from Sibs, right? That the work of grace is that we're still, the sanctification process isn't instantaneously, boy, that would be great, but that's called glorification, right? And that's when we're made perfectly in the image of God and get the fellowship without sin, Right? But in sanctification, we still have to battle. The redemption of our bodies, we're waiting eagerly, for this is the hope that we are saved. Now hope that is seen not, is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? 
We can't see everything. Once again, think, blinded by all the things going on. I'm blinded by the fact that justice is corrupt. Regardless if a man is good in which he judges or a man uses it in wicked ways. I'm going to turn to dust. We're all going to die. And in thinking about these, we have to hope, not in something that is seen, but if we hope for we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So I say, say to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that you don't struggle alone. I don't know all of your struggles. I'm not in your fellowship, so I don't know you personally in, in a way that I could know all of those struggles. You know, I, I even hear that, you know, as a church, you're, you're, you're thinking about a, a physical place that you might be in the future. That alone could be this sense of kind of, uh, we're, we're not there yet kind of feeling that's still there. But I implore you that you're not alone and wait in patience. Right? Christ has gone before you. He makes your path straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Right? He is with you, the fellowship of believers. You have each other in which you can groan together. But just remember that as you groan together to keep the context of the purpose of life is to worship. The, the essence or the, saw, the salve, if you would, for the wound of groaning, of longing for justice to be true, of longing for that life that's glorified and not battling with the corruption on a daily basis even though we have grace. It's sufficient, yes, as we see Paul say, but as we groan in that, don't forget that the purpose is that we would worship. The oppressor has lost his power. Death has lost its sting. Our assurance is real. Our assurance is Christ. Remember this. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into a land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord, and I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Hold fast to his promises. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting patiently, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Jesus, 
Uh, we come to you as your, your children. And our acknowledgement is first that we, we long deeply for you. Every fiber in our being and every breath that we breathe, God, I, I know that we long to see you face to face. And may we remember that our life is just a dot in eternity. It's a butt of vapor. That means that in the moment, we will see you face to face. Even if it doesn't seem like a moment now, we will see you. And praise God that you have redeemed us. That you have ransomed us from the penalty that we deserve, the death that we deserve, and that to be dust and for our spirit to be cast away. That you would save us from that and not only grant us the grace of the not yet in which we will be glorified and we will see you face to face, but that we will also be granted the grace of, that is totally sufficient in the moment that we would be sanctified, that our minds and our spirit would be transformed into the image of Christ. So God, we plead with you. We long for you. We ask for the balance and the wisdom of the word in our life. Pray that you would give us uh, the, the longing for the word that the psalmist in 119 has, that your word would be honey upon our lips, that we would dive deep into your word on a daily basis, knowing that it enables us to know you, Lord. And in knowing you, we find peace, we find patience, we find hope, and we find salvation. Thank you, our deliverer, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.